On today's New Species Podcast, we're going to talk about a group called the Armored Scale Insects, which have economic importance worldwide. Let's get started. New Species, the podcast where we talk to scientists about their discoveries of organisms that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to the authors of these studies to get behind the scenes stories, to talk about why these discoveries should matter to everyone, not just scientists, and to help people better understand the wonderful biodiversity of our planet. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Patrick, and today I'm joined by Dr. Scott Schneider, a research entomologist in the Systematic Entomology Lab at the USDA's Agricultural Research Service in Beltsville, Maryland. He's here today to talk to me about his recent paper in Zoochies, in which he and his co-authors describe four new species of armored scale insects from Panama. Welcome, Scott. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. And what an interesting group we're talking about. I don't think a whole lot of people know about these, but they are economically important throughout the world. But again, I don't think most, most people know what these are. Let's start at the kind of the larger scale. What is a uh, scale? Ha uh, pun. <laughs> <laughs> what is a scale insect? Well, they are an unusual group of insects to say the least. Um, if you think about the features that make up a typical insect, the scale insects like to flaunt the rules. Um, so insects usually have a well-defined um, body segmentation plan. Scale insects have a very simplified body plan where the definitions between head, thorax, and abdomen have disappeared. So really their body plan is a simplified um, oval shape. Um, they do not have wings. The only life stage that has wings in scale insects um, are adult males. Adult females never have wings, and insects typically do have wings. Um, insects usually have three pairs of legs, and often in the scale insects, they have lost their legs entirely, or they can have you know, various forms of uh, reduction of their legs. So they're legless, generally. Uh, often, often legless. Yeah, it kind of goes by family. So some families have legs typically, and some families do not. Okay, and and why are they called scale insects? There's a reason for that name, right? Like, the, where does the name scale come from? That's right. It comes from the waxy coverings that scale insects uh, tend to produce. So most of them have various wax-producing structures, uh, pores, and the such ducts, uh, and they produce wax of various kinds. Um, and again, it depends on the family that we're talking about. So people um, are often unfamiliar with scale insects, but the ones that people do tend to know uh, most often are mealybugs. Uh, when I mention mealybugs to the general public, a few, a few light bulbs click on, you know, oh, I've heard of that, I've seen that before. And so mealybugs get this common name from the type of wax that they produce, which is a fluffy mealy sort of white wax on their body. Um, and then the insects that we consider to be more um, scaled would be something like the armored scale insects, which is the group that we were talking about in this paper, um, where they form a waxy shield over their body and they live underneath of this shield. And they're kind of 
flattened almost like a like a scale like you, you'd picture on like a snake in a lot of cases right that's that's like they're they're kind of a flat little i wouldn't even call them a dome just kind of like a think of like the concavity of a spoon it's not super deep but it's just this nice little flattened thing that goes real tight up against the leaf normally right that's right yeah so they're very closely oppressed to the plant uh and they a lot of times they look like a they could be a piece of the plant um, right or, you know sort of a weird growth on the plant they're not at all obvious um it's it's not at all obvious that you're looking at an insect yeah and their size varies quite a bit too right it does. Uh, most of them are fairly small. They are, you know, less than a millimeter to a few millimeters large. Uh, there are some families that get to be a bit bigger. They can be, you know, five millimeters or larger. Yeah. And so these little flattened things you just see on a leaf, if you happen to be lucky enough to find some, and you, you'd probably just think that they're just like a little dot or something. You don't really think much of them, right? Right. Yeah. They were so good at, at uh, making their way around the globe on plant material that people were transporting because they don't look uh, very, they're, because they're small and they don't, you know, look very obvious. Um, yeah, they're not a big not bump. They just look like a little tiny, most often the ones I've seen are like a little tiny brownish or goldish spot or something, or, or even sometimes a light green, so you don't even really see it, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, some of them can be a little bit transparent, and so they do just look like a little um, discoloration of the plant. And what are they doing on the plants? So scale insects are plant feeders. Um, they're part of the order Hemiptera. So they have mouth parts that are designed to be like a um, siphon uh, or a straw. They implant that uh, into their host plant, and they feed on the you know, either the um, sort of vascular tissues of the plant, which would be going the after the flow. sugars and the like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or they can feed on the cell contents. Um, so for the armored scale insects, like I mentioned uh, before, they don't feed on the vascular tissues. They feed on the actual cell contents of the plant. So they're kind of like mosquitoes for plants. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. So That's they have right. that nice little long poker, they go right inside of there. And, and these particular ones that we're talking about, the armored scale ones, you said they don't go after like the, what we call the xylem and the phloem, kind of like the veins and stuff of the plant. They're, they're actually going out feeding on the actual tissue. So this would be something like if it got onto you, it wouldn't be trying to poke in and get your blood. It would be poking in and then trying to gnaw at the tissues around your veins and arteries, right? Yeah, it would be sucking your cells dry instead. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> and so we have kind of a rough idea what these do ecologically. Why do we care about them as far as this goes? Like, why is this? A, you work for the USDA Agricultural Research Service, and this is not a small thing for your group. Why is the USDA ARS interested in this? Like, why, well, why do we care about them in that respect? Yeah, I mentioned before that they tend to be transported around the world on plant material fairly easily. And so um, in addition to being highly invasive, they can also be very damaging to the plants that they're feeding on. So a lot of times this is involving crops, plants that we care about. And under normal circumstances, scale insect populations tend to have relatively low abundance 
their natural enemies keep their populations fairly low, but when they're released from pressures from natural enemies, they are their populations are free to explode and they end up causing a lot of damage to the host plants. Yeah, and, and just to put it in perspective for our listeners here, we're talking about these things can be affecting things like soybeans and corn and all sorts of crops that we deeply, deeply care about. You know, the top 10 crops in the U.S. all have scale insects that could be affecting them. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So these are one of those things that when you see those commercials for things like Roundup, I have occasionally heard them say, you know, it controls nematodes and scale insects. I've even heard it said in in the commercial before. Have you ever heard that before? No, I've never caught that before. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did one time and I thought scale insects and I thought about it and I was like, oh, I, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Okay, I understand. Yeah. Huh. Uh, yeah, that's news to me. But, you know, I will say I have found them on my produce at the grocery store before. I've seen mealybugs sitting on my bananas while I'm shopping at the store. <laughs> how, how does that make you feel as the USDA ARS guy? <laughs> uh, well, they slipped past. <laughs> well, you're we not, you're not an aphis, so right? Of a job of filtering. <laughs> yeah, you're not, well, you're not technically an aphis, right? So the, I'm sorry for those who are listening. That's the group that's in charge of like the produce coming in and inspecting it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So aphis is, uh, is our sister agency and we do right. work very closely with them. So, um, one of the roles that I serve in my position is as a national identifier. Um, so when we have plant material coming into the U.S. Um, from, from different countries, that all gets inspected and someone has to identify the insects that are on that plant material. Um, and so we help APHIS with getting some of those identifications. Right, right, right. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I admit I made a, a rather obscure reference to APHIS right there. <laughs> it stands for Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, which is a part of the USDA. Right, right, right. Yeah, and thank you for that clarification. Now that we know where these are found and kind of a little bit about them, what they look like, that sort of thing, uh, can you tell us how did you find these new species? That you described four new species in this paper, uh, mm -hmm. and they're across a couple of different, three different genera. Yeah, three different genera. It's kind of an interesting story for how these were discovered. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so this was a cool trip that unfortunately I didn't get to go on, <laughs> but the group of uh, researchers who went out to collect these specimens um, traveled down to Panama and they went to the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, uh, which is located in the rainforest in Panama, and they have a series of canopy cranes that allow uh, researchers to go up to the tippy top of the trees and sample from the leaves and the branches uh, up in that area. So the group of researchers who were doing the sampling went up to the tops of the trees and they collected segments of leaf uh, from the canopies. So this is an area where, you know, has, has anyone looked here before for um, species? Probably not. Uh, so this was kind of a first look at the fauna of the canopy in this part of the world. And specifically your, your co-author Ben Normark, or Normark, sorry, uh, he, he goes and looks for these in non-agricultural settings intentionally, right? Isn't that part of like what he just likes to do is like, okay, we know all sorts of things about the agricultural ones. What about in a natural environment? Isn't that part of like his kind of like life directive? 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, so part of the goal of this study was to take a look at scale diversity um, beyond the agricultural world. So we see species on crops and on ornamental plants often, and we have a very good understanding of who occurs um, on those species. But just, you know, in the, in the normal world, uh, especially in a hyper-diverse place, um, you know, like- Like the, Panama. Yeah, like <laughs> Panama, like the neotropics, um, it would be nice to have a better understanding of the species diversity there. In that particular environment, do we have any idea what kind of ecological role they play? Obviously, they're phytographers, right? Which means they're 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 feeding on the plants. But do we know anything more about their biology outside of that? Anything about their life of these new species, of their life history, of predators? Anything? Do we have any more information on that, or are they just that new? For these new species, uh, we have very little information at this point. We we really have one data point of, you know, this species that we collected was feeding on this particular host plant. Um, if we happened to collect specimens that were parasitized, we might have a little bit of information about like, oh, okay, this natural enemy was associated with them. But we didn't have any of that information for these, you know, these four. Sure. Um, so right now, we're just kind of skimming the surface for uh, ecological information tied to these new species. You mentioned some of the natural enemies that typically, I understand we don't know them for these four species. What kind of natural enemies do these things normally have? Uh, it, typically you would have wasps that are parasitoid wasps. So Encarcia, um, for example, tend to attack scales fairly often. Um, we're, so they, they sting them, lay an egg on the inside of it or the outside of it, and then let that thing go until it finally kills the host and the little new baby wasp comes out? That's right. Yep. They mummify the, the host insect and a baby wasp emerges <laughs> or several baby wasps emerge. Now, this is the part where it, it should start blowing people's minds because some of these scale insects are a millimeter or less, which means that their parasitoid, parasitoid wasp is probably a millimeter or less. Yes. <laughs> and that means that the baby of the parasitoid wasp is way smaller than that. And the babies of these armored scale insects are very, very tiny. That's right. You, you even allude to in the paper that the larvae are almost like dust. If these things don't have legs, which you said earlier, which is just mind blowing, by the way, at certain stages of their life, they have no legs, even though, and it's not like a maggot or something rolling around. It's like a little insect that's just stuck there. Like, I can't move. <laughs> <laughs> How are they moving around? How, what, tell, tell us a little bit about like how an armored scale insect, I know we don't know a whole lot about these species. How are they dispersing? How are they finding mates? Sure, yeah. So the dispersive stage for armored scale insects is the first life stage. Um, they're babies. Right, right so out of the called, egg, right? Right, right after they come out of the egg. So those are called crawlers. Um, and they are, like we said, very, very tiny. Um, they do have legs, and most often what they will do is they either settle on the host plant close to where mom was, or they can be more widely dispersed in a semi, in a fairly random way. So they can be wind dispersed because they're so tiny, they can just be blown away, and then they land on some plant somewhere and settle down and try to feed on it. 
um, or they can undergo something called phoresis where they hitch a ride on another uh, organism, another insect or animal, um, and that animal takes them for a ride, they land on a host and they settle down. Um, for armored scales, once they settle down and start to feed, they go through their first molt and the next life stage is a legless blob. Uh, it's basically a pair of mouth parts implanted into the uh, host and, <laughs> and a blobbish body. Uh, you know, even their antennae are extremely reduced because they don't really have much of a need for sensory um, information from the world around them. They're, they're staying put in this place wherever they settle down. Uh, and then for females, the adult female looks very similar as well. Uh, she's basically just a larger version of this simple blob-like uh, insect. For males, they undergo a couple of pupil stages where their body transforms more dramatically and they emerge as an adult male that looks more like a typical insect. So the adult males will have legs, well-developed antennae, and wings typically, and they are free to fly around and find females to mate with. Um, this means their life is very, very short as an adult male. So they usually live about a day, maybe two. They have just enough time to get out there, find some mates, you know, pass on their genes, and then they kick the bucket. And when it comes to, so, so we're getting into the life history parts of this now. You were just talking about going through all those life stages. As we alluded to earlier, these are plant feeders and sometimes they can be very specific and sometimes they can be what we call polyphagous. In other words, they can go to lots of different host plants. Uh -huh. When it came to naming a couple of these species, you name them after the plant on which they were found, right? That's true. Yep. Yeah. So uh, whether or not that species is a specialist on that host, time will tell. <laughs> ah, you detected where I was going with this. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> this is this happens fairly often in the scale insects. People use the host plant as inspiration for the name of the species. And then down the road, we find, well, actually, that that scale insect is able to feed on lots of hosts. So naming it after the host plant wasn't all that informative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it might be. You don't know it yet, right? It might be. Yeah. Sometimes you just need to find a name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and one of them was a, the the first species you name in the paper, Clavaspis sylvatica. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about the specific epithet of that one. So you chose sylvatica for kind of a more generalized reason. What was that one about? Right, so uh, Sylvatica selva refers to forest, and in common usage, it's referring specifically to tropical rainforest. So we use that as a more general indicator of, you know, this is the species that came from the neotropics, from a tropical rainforest. So this fourth species that you name, correct me if my pronunciation is wrong, Rungaspis neotropicalis. Yeah, that sounds right. What is that whole neotropicalis specific epithet have to do with things? Well, we decided to call this species in particular Neotropicalis because it is an, a neotropical member of an otherwise afrotropical group. Uh, Rungaspis is the genus, and it was previously known only from the afrotropics. And so uh, that would mean afrotropics were referring literally to Africa, like right. a whole different continent. Right. Neotropics right. we find in the new world, hence neo as a, as a way to say new, 
and the new tropics, which would be Central South America regions, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And so, so please the, continue. I'm sorry, I was just clarifying the biogeography terms. Oh sure, no no problem. Um, so the the association here is interesting. Uh, there is an ancient link between Africa and South America, and so this may just you know, represent a lineage that was present in both areas before they had split, or this might be a species that hitched a ride over from Africa at some point. Um, you know, we had to work under the assumption to start with that this was a native species, something that is native to the neotropics. And that's where you're still at at this point, as I recall reading the paper, right? You, you're still not quite sure. You have very, very long remarks on this particular one going into some of this. And you basically just conclude, well, we haven't got evidence that it's an invasive or I, that's, I don't really like that word, let's say adventive species from Africa. So we're just going to assume for now that it's native? <laughs> until Question mark? We have, right. <laughs> until we have evidence to the contrary, uh, you know, we, the best assumption we can work with is that it's native to where we found it. And just to bring this whole all together now, a lot of people may be thinking in their brains like, well, okay, sure. So you're right. It could be found in two different places. And if it is adventive, which means that it, it, it's, that's a kinder way to say that it's exotic or it's not, it's not from originally from here. Uh, listen to my podcast with Adam Brunke uh, a few episodes ago for our listeners, if you want to know more about that. Since this is over here, people may be thinking in their brain, well, how would it get all the way over here from Africa? Think back to what I just talked to Scott about a few minutes ago with how small these little things are as soon as they come out of the out of the egg. They're almost dust-like, right? Think about less than a millimeter. That you, you probably wouldn't easily spot this with your naked eye if you could at all, right? No, it would be very difficult to spot. In fact, you, you're more likely to inhale it by accident <laughs> than you are to ever see it because it would literally be like dust. And can you, if you can imagine, the, there, there are global wind patterns that bring dust and all sorts of things over in the atmosphere across the Atlantic Ocean. So it is it is conceivable that it came from the Afrotropics, but obviously you, you, you just don't have the conclusive evidence for that. Right. Yeah, it's possible. Now that we've covered a lot about these species, and we've even talked about how they got their names, the one area that we haven't really talked about is how did you decide that these were new species? These don't exactly seem like organisms that have lots of horns and hooks and all sorts of crazy things about them, they seem pretty subtle. So how do you determine that these are new species, especially across three different genera? So you got four new species in three different genera. How did you figure that out? Yeah, well, to help us out, we use a combination of molecular and morphological data sources. Um, so actually in, these, in this project, where we start is with some molecular evidence. Um, we have use DNA to help us place them in the appropriate genus, you know, along with their closest relatives. Um, they're a part of a phylogeny, you know, at this point. And so what I mean by phylogeny is this is like a family tree um, to see how species are related to one another. And it also points out, you know, the phylogeny helps to point out where we have uh, little groups of specimens that are separate and distinct from others that are known. Uh, and here's, you know, a, a little group all to its own. And we take a look at it morphologically and, and we're not sure 
who this is. It doesn't um, key out to any of the known species that we've seen before. And that's when we dive deeper into the morphology. So we look at morphological characters. And again, these are very subtle because this group is morphologically reduced in general. And by morphological, I mean, we're looking at the physical characteristics of the thing, yeah. like the shapes of it, the size of their eyes, wings, legs, anything about them that we can discover, right? Yeah. And so for armored scales, the most useful characteristics are, uh, they kind of revolve around the posterior end of the body uh, in a structure that we call the pagidium. So what this is, is a fusion of abdominal segments five through eight um, into kind of a, you know, just one segment instead. So if you were um, looking but, at a wasp, you would see those individual little lines on the butt side of it, right? And what you're saying is all these get fused into one big one instead yeah, of being able to see the little the lines moving better. around, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and we're looking at tiny microscopic characters. They have, um, you know, projections of the cuticle at the margin, they're called lobes and plates. Uh, they have different wax producing structures, sclerotization patterns. These are the sorts of characteristics that we're looking at to help distinguish between species. Now, one of the things I, I have to admit, I, I actually forgot to look at this in your paper. How big are these specific species we're talking about, these four of them? Like, what's their size range? Oh, I think they're all uh, from about one half to one millimeter long. Okay, so now you're talking about looking at, that's what I assumed. You're talking about looking at the morphology of these. You're not just holding these things under like a like a magnifying glass. You're... Nope. <laughs> are you using, did you use SEM? Did you, you know, scanning electron microscopy? Did you use light microscopes? How did you look at all this morphology? We use light microscopy. So for scale insects, the preparation of specimens to be able to look at them, you first have to clear their body of um, basically all of the gunk inside. Um, you clear all that junk out, you stain them, and then you mount them onto a slide. So the collection of scale insects is really a collection of these slide mounted specimens. And we look at that under high magnification in, uh, using light microscopy. All right, so you, you mount them on a, well, you, you, you wash them a lot, <laughs> basically, in little bits of liquid, and right. then you add certain types of dyes or whatever to it that'll stain various pieces of it, right? Occasionally. Yes. And mm -hmm. then you, you actually put that on like a microscope slide. Did I get that process right? Yeah, that's right. Why do you work on these? That sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so I think a lot of insects, you can find their charm in the dramatic color patterns, you know, of the body, the dramatic, you know, color patterns of the wings. For the scale insects, I think they are charmingly weird. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why- That's fair, that's fair. Yeah, and, and you know, maybe the people who work on them are charmingly weird too. <laughs> I would call you charming, but I wouldn't call you weird. Well, maybe okay. because you work on scale insects. Okay. How about that? <laughs> Sounds fair. Thanks. But you know, I'll, I'll, I'm going to go with what EO Wilson says. And this is the kind of the, the mantra that I took on. I, I don't have a whole lot of room to, to speak. I work on the smallest of the spiders in the, in a group called Linophiidae, which are like generally anywhere from one to about four millimeters long. And you have to look at their naughty parts, right? The genitalia. So mm -hmm. I, I don't have a whole lot of room to speak. EO Wilson said, what you do is, is if you want to work in a group and you want to be very successful in science, 
find the thing that nobody else is working on or that very few people work on and go be an expert in that. Yeah. And eventually somebody will need your expertise <laughs> and you'll have your own niche for it. So that's, that's part of what I did is I chose a, a group of spiders that nobody really wants to work with because they're difficult. A uh, guy I talked to a couple of weeks ago uh, chose a group of oysters that nobody he actually, he said oysters in general, nobody wants to work with. So he thought they were wide open and thought I'll try those. And it sounds like scale insects. If there are listeners out there who are budding entomologists who are thinking, well, butterflies and everything are really cool, but there's so many people who work on those. How about maybe the scale insects, right? Particularly the armored Absolutely. scale insects. Absolutely, yes. We need people to come work on scale insects. Uh, in, in fact, the community of scale insect experts is largely retired. Um, and so if you are a budding entomologist, come come over to the scale side. We need you. Yeah, I think a lot of these kind of underserved groups could say that. I don't think people understand, you know, when we have, you know, a million arthropods that are described, let alone the tens of millions that aren't, how many of those are not a beetle? <laughs> right. right. So there's lots of, there's lots of work out there to be done. Absolutely. And this kind of gets us to the last question on all of this that I wanted to make sure I asked you, why is this biodiversity discovery, like going after new species and like so important? Yeah, well, um, you know, I think about this from a few different perspectives. I think there's a very practical reason uh, in which, you know, in order for us to make good species identifications, we have to have a, a good idea of the diversity of a group. And the more we know about the diversity of that group, the better prepared we are to make accurate identifications. And then all of the important metadata that goes along with that species name. So the things we were talking about before, the host plant, the natural enemies, the symbionts, um, all of that is tied to the species name. So the more you know about a group, the more likely you are to make correct identifications for species. Um, and in, and in a job like what you have, that gets to be critical, right? Because we're talking you know, there could be something unknown that comes in that could literally devastate a crop nationwide in a very short period of time over the course of just a few years if we don't figure out quickly what it is, identify it, and be able to get to it. So Absolutely. even just going to a very pragmatic, anthropocentric, you know, the human-centered idea, in, in this case, you're doing critical work to protect our country and our interests. So, so for that, I thank you. I don't think that, that a lot of people understand that that's, that's a real job of entomologists. <laughs> yeah, well, well, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Has anybody ever thanked you? Like, thank you for your service to our country. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, yes, someone just did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for the first time. You're welcome. <laughs> and I say that to all of my guests on my podcast, as far as, you know, going retrospectively now, I want to say thanks to all of you, because, uh, we really do provide a service to our world by trying to get out and find and name all of these species together. And Scott, I want to thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. It's been a real treat talking to you and I've had a great time and I yeah, hope you had a fun too. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's been great joining you. Once again, Dr. Scott Schneider's paper is in the June 24 issue of Zookies. The title of the paper is four new species of Aspodiatini from Panama with the key to Panamanian species. See the episode details for a link to his paper, and to learn more about Scott, check out the episode notes for more information. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter 
at Podcast Species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash new species podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast.